welcome to You Got This, a podcast about teaching and learning and sustaining community for everyone at Thompson Rivers University. I'm your host, Brenna Clark-Gray, Coordinator of Educational Technologies, and this podcast is a project of your friends over at Learning Technology and Innovation. We're housed within open learning, but we support the whole campus community. I record this podcast into Kamloops Te Sequepum within the unceded traditional lands of Sequepum Ulu, where I hope to learn and grow in community with all of you. And today, I'm thinking about an intangible thing. I'm thinking about the idea of belongingness. I'll explain why in a second. Let's get into it. So as I've talked about on the show before, I'm working on a podcast. Well, I'm working on a lot of podcasts, including this one, but I'm working on a peer-reviewed podcast project at the moment. And uh, I'm in a bit of a crunch time deadline-wise. So I've been really immersed in the interviews that I did for that podcast project as I edit audio uh, seemingly every waking moment of my day. And I'm really thinking about an interview I did with a, a woman named Andretisha Fritzgerald. Andretisha wrote a book that really opened my eyes to a different kind of application of universal design for learning or UDL. So the book is called Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, Building Expressways to Success. And in it, Fritzgerald explores how to use universal design for learning, which you're probably really familiar with as an accessibility tool, right? A way of thinking about designing our courses for maximum access for students with disabilities or different kinds of learning challenges. But Fritzgerald explicitly frames UDL as a tool in the anti-racist pedagogy tool belt. And it's really a fascinating way of sort of expanding or opening out the purpose of universal design for learning. You know, it's not uncommon to hear critiques of accessibility in higher ed as being particularly targeted towards well, white learners, frankly. This book really opened my eyes to thinking about UDL, I guess, more expansively. Anyway, I've been editing this audio and there's this concept that Andretisha comes back to again and again in our chat, which is this idea of belongingness, the role of belongingness in learning and how it is that we welcome a student into our course. What messages do we send to a student before they've even joined us in the classroom that might signal whether they belong there or not. And I think that this is a powerful thing to think about in June (laughs) because many of us are trying to get the last prep done before we put everything away for a month or two. And I wonder if this is a moment to really look at the way we present ourselves on the page, in the syllabus, or in any other materials that we distribute to students, but particularly things that they might see before the course begins. Your Moodle shell, maybe, if you open that up before the course begins, for example. What do we signal to students in those spaces? So in the interview I'm editing, Fritzgerald gives this example of the textbook. Do you just have the textbook? Or do you have the textbook and you also provide links to how to get it as an ebook or an audiobook? And do you talk to students about how to use a screen reader so the book can be read to them so that any barriers that they have or even just anxieties or like just straight up exhaustion around reading long passages of text 
Fitzgerald suggests that there's a way to break that down, right? There's a way to start the course by saying, yes, this is the textbook, but here are some other ways to access it that might be more appropriate to how you prefer to learn. I think there's lots of ways we can do that, right? We signal belongingness too by normalizing supports. So if your course is writing intensive, either inviting the writing center in or encouraging students to go to the writing center and making that an encouragement that goes to everyone, right? Not treating it as a remedial offering or remedial service, but making clear that writing support benefits everybody. These are ways that we can signal to an incoming student that this is going to be a space of welcome and a space of support, and that those supports and the idea that we all learn a little bit differently, the idea that we all have different kinds of preferences, that's going to be normalized, right? That's going to be just a part of how we express learning in this class. One of the things I really like about this book, Anti-Racism and Universal Design for Learning, is that it's really cognizant of power dynamics in the classroom and how they function. And in our conversation, Andre Tisha draws this line between power and honor, right? So as the teacher in the classroom, we have a certain amount of power instilled in us by the structure. But what we can choose to do with that power is we can choose to consciously honor what our students come into our classroom with, the stories that they bring with them, the experiences that they bring with them, the preferences that they bring with them, right? We can decide to honor those things in the way we design our classrooms. I'll include a link to the book in the show notes because I I really think it's worth reading, worth checking out. And hopefully soon (laughs) I will have this podcast out in the world and you can listen to the full interview with Andra Tisha because it's fantastic. But I thought I'd put a bug in your ear about it now because thinking about what we signal to students before they enter our classroom um, is something that was pretty new to me. It's not something I thought of by default in my early days as an instructor. And I, I think it's something that we can all probably work on. Well, I mean, probably the structure of the institution <laughs> can work on it. I mean, that boilerplate syllabus, like, is there anything less welcoming? Anyway, speaking of welcoming, (laughs) I'm really excited because um, the newest member of our team, Brad Forsythe, is here for a chat today. He's our new learning technologist. We have sadly said goodbye to Amanda Smith, who you met on a previous episode, and we've welcomed Brad. I thought you might want to meet the man behind the Moodle tickets. So as promised, I am here today with learning technologist Brad. Brad, would you introduce yourself to the community and maybe say where folks might have seen you on campus before, where you lurk now, any of that kind of stuff? Sure. Uh, Yeah, I'm Brad Forsyth. Um, So um, I'm our uh, new-ish learning technologist. Joined the team at the beginning of April. I've been around TRU for quite a while in different uh, aspects. I've been working here for about seven and a half years. I can go through my history if you like, but I I started uh, right after doing my undergrad here as well. So I've been at TRU in some capacity since graduating high school, which is weird to think about. Not really sure (laughs) how I feel about that. Um, But yeah, I guess the best way to explain my current role is, you know, I'm kind of, you know, our frontline support when faculty or students contact us with Moodle questions or other learning technology related questions. So if anybody contacts us, it's probably going to be me that responds these days, whether you like it or not, but hopefully (laughs) 
really hard to be helpful. It's a combination of your wild efficiency at answering tickets and the lower ticket volume over summer. But yeah, I think you're answering like 100% of the tickets these days are pretty close. I kind of have to just to keep busy. I've kind of joined at what seems like it's a bit of a lull. And I don't want to give you a nervous tick when I say that because I know <laughs> how crazy it's been the last couple of years for the team. But I think that's Partly, obviously, because it's, you know, summer downtime, but I think it's also a testament to, you know, all the work that this team did over the last two years, as well as, you know, all the work that faculty have done in kind of improving their Moodle proficiency over the last couple of years. So it's been a pretty easy transition so far. Yeah, it's something that Brian and I were talking about last week is just the this the baseline competency level of the community is mm-hmm. up. And the individual tickets, there's definitely less of them. But I think most of them are of a more complicated caliber than we used to get. You know, like yeah. back at the beginning, it was like, uh, nothing's working. And you'd write back and you'd be like, is editing turned on? And you'd be <laughs> like, oh, yeah, oops. <laughs> we don't get any of those kind of tickets anymore. No, I don't. I get very rarely those types of really basic questions. Uh, a lot of the questions are, you know, people are doing, you know, more creative and relatively complex stuff within Moodle. And a lot of the questions are, you know, I've been using this for the last couple of semesters and it's just not working quite the way I want it to, or I brought it forward from my previous course and, you know, something seems to have broken. So we kind of work through that together, but definitely it's a lot more, you know, relatively complex questions that that tend to come in. And, you know, when I, when I first see them, my instant response a lot of the time is, I don't know. And we have have to do some investigation, but yeah, there's not a lot of those really basic questions these days. I used to tell Jamie that the main part of my job is Googling, like Googling and reading the Moodle documentation to figure out what people are struggling with, because, you know, there's a huge, well, everybody listening to this knows there's a huge number of things that can happen in Moodle and like a huge number of settings. And I don't think anybody keeps it all in their head. No, and there's a lot of different pathways. (laughs) Jamie does for sure, but the rest of us mere mortals, yeah, we have to we have to test things and Google things. It's true. I've got a question for you. Being that you were a student at TRU like some time ago, now (laughs) I'm guessing you can notice a, a significant uptick in the uptake of technology in the classroom from when you were a student here. Do you think? I think so. Yeah, it's hard to get kind of a temperature check in this role just because, again, it's been pretty quiet. And prior to this, I was working on the open learning side. But when I was a student and I was a history student, so I was kind of the opposite of tech savvy, um, Mm -hmm. Moodle was primarily just used to, you know, a dumping ground for PowerPoint slides and, and that sort of thing. You know, we didn't have, at least in my experience, we didn't utilize discussion forums or Moodle quizzes or anything like that. So it def- definitely does seem to be more of an active space for students rather than just a, a resource center, I suppose. Yeah, I get that sentiment too. I think that you could easily do an arts degree here previously and maybe never even really log into Moodle. Like Moodle was there if you missed a class maybe, or it was where the syllabus was posted, but that's certainly not the case now. And I think the expectations of students have really shifted too. Like they anticipate that that space is going to be used for something and it's forced faculty to really up their game, which, you know, as we've talked about, they really have, uh, which has been kind of a rewarding part of this whole chaotic period. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, I think the learning management system, Historically, I mean, the word management is in the name. So, I mean, Mm -hmm. it's kind of evolved over time to have those additional activities and that sort of thing. So it's, 
as the learning management system grows, I think faculty and you know student expectations of how to use it have grown as well. And I think the pandemic just kind of amplified that by forcing everybody to use it more. I've always preferred the term they use in the UK, right? They call it the virtual learning environment over there. That does sound and, uh, a lot nicer, yeah. Doesn't it? Yeah. <laughs> it sounds it sounds a lot less like a repository and a lot more yeah. like a classroom. You exactly. Know? Yeah. So Brad, you came through the MET program at UBC, right? Yes. Yeah. So I graduated last year. So it's the the Master of Educational Technology program through UBC. It's a fully online program. And at the time when I went in, when I went into it, I was working as part of the registrar's office. I was in my second role at TRU as part of our transfer credit team. So assessing mm. students' transcripts and that sort of thing. And kind of halfway through my role at that time, I'd been in that role for about a year and a half. You know, I started to ask myself, well, what do I want to be when I grow up? And <laughs> That's always something you should be asking yourself in your late twenties. Um, so I started <laughs> <Still> to, <wondering. laughs> yeah, me too. Um, so I started to kind of brainstorm, you know, grad school options. I had kind of all different sorts of subject areas, museum studies. I had been accepted to Ooh. go to archaeology about a couple of years before that, and decided not to. So my life could be very different right now. But eventually settled on the UBC Met program, and it was really kind of a pragmatic choice you know I saw that you know if I'm going to stick it here you what field is probably going to grow over the years and obviously I didn't see the pandemic coming right around the corner which has Mm -hmm. caused it to grow even more but yeah I got into that program again I went into it without a teaching background without a technology background and you know I found most of the students were either educators you know k-12 teachers or lot of university instructors as well, or they were instructional designers, or they were even already kind of ed tech specialists that just wanted, you know, more of that theoretical foundation. So I dealt with feelings of imposter syndrome for quite a while in the program, probably about, you know, halfway through, three quarters of the way through that started to wear off. Still feel it a little bit. But then while I was in the program, I was able to switch over to our open learning production team and they do all of the setup and kind of maintenance of our open learning courses. So that was a little bit more in line with what I was learning. And um, yeah, it was it was a great program. I don't think I'd be in a role like this without it. It's so interesting. Education programs in general, they tend to catch like lots of different people, you know, yes. and uh, I definitely deal with those feelings of imposter syndrome all the time because well, I've talked about this with Brian Lotz, but like, I don't have any kind of education degree background. Like previously, a lot of folks who have been in this role have had, you know, educational doctorates or masters of education. And I have none of those things. But what I like about that, other than the fact that I'm like employed, which is great, but um, is the sort of, I don't know, I I think that coming to these roles with a range of experiences Mm -hmm. is really valuable because if everybody just kind of came through like a bachelor of education and then a master's of education and then an education doctorate, like that would really limit the scope because the community we serve comes from all different perspectives, very few of which are either technology or even, you know, education. They may be educators, but they don't necessarily have that training and background either, right? For sure. Yeah. And I I think I'm kind of one of the rare people, and maybe this is becoming more common that specifically planned to get into this field as an outsider. Mm -hmm. I think a lot of people like yourself, and I hope I don't mischaracterize this, are, you know, tech savvy educators that eventually just kind of transition into this field. So yeah, that was, I think with this program, and there's there's not a lot of programs like it, I think it is becoming more common that people specifically get into this field, though. 
Well, and this is a question for you because you said you chose it pragmatically and like, like good job because <laughs> you, you, uh, you, you did it at just the right time. But yeah. I mean, you don't finish a graduate program purely on the basis of pragmatism. So I'm, no. I'm wondering what it is about educational technology that kind of grabs you or that makes you like want to understand it on a, on a deeper level. Yeah. I mean, I, I don't want to make it sound like it was only for, you know, finding a, a TRU <laughs> continuing. Um, I, I guess like, you know, my first role here was an enrollment service and at the time we only dealt with open learning students. So that was kind of my mm. first taste, I guess, in working with online learning, even though, you know, I was just servicing students, but that's when I kind of started to value it and value kind of our open principles that we have here. Um, mm. So I kind of got into learning technology specifically um, just because I myself, and I love to learn new things. I'm constantly trying to learn all sorts of things. So I kind of like being in this sort of environment. Really, I just wanted something that would kind of challenge me creatively as well. I mean, mm-hmm. there's there's a lot of different ways that we can approach this, uh, you know, not just from a text point of view, but from a teaching and learning point of view as well. So when I got into the program, again, I dealt with those feelings of imposter syndrome for a while, but then really started to appreciate what I was learning, you know, who I was learning with and from, and got to do a lot of really cool electives that just kind of hooked me and yeah, stuck with it until I finished it. Oh, did you have any favorites in the, in the electives you took? Yes. Um, in my last semester, I took a, a course on creating digital educational games. So we just Ooh. created a video game as our final project throughout the whole semester. That was really cool. And then I probably besides that, I would say I took a really cool elective on how to implement, I guess, climate and energy literacy into oh. your educational practice. And it was not from a science perspective, it was actually from a humanities perspective. So how to incorporate energy literacy uh, into the humanities through storytelling and, and stuff like that. So very different perspective and you know, obviously something that's very critical right now. Oh, that's cool. That sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. I really like that you picked up the thread of the creativity of this role because I think from outside, uh, people might think that educational technology doesn't intersect with creativity creativity very much you know mm-hmm. well there's brian sometimes jokes there's this perception of us as like button pushers <laughs> like yeah. it's our job to to make the moodles go but the role itself is it's super creative on a baseline level just because as jamie will point out within moodle or wordpress there's like 400 ways to do any individual task yeah. <laughs> so finding your own route through is kind of inherently creative but also working with educational technologies i think it opens up a lot of different like assessment practices, which you would have experienced in the in the MET program, that are creative, right? That are, you know, going beyond the multiple choice exam and the five paragraph essay to really think about what's the best way to demonstrate learning. And that, of course, is inherently creative. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I think this goes back to what you and Brian talked about in your episode last week, I guess it was, about just what a learning technologist is. And again, it's not just, you know, tech support, although that is part of what we do. But I think my biggest takeaway from the MET program was, you know, we really placed teaching and learning at the center of it and the technology was almost secondary. You know, so you're thinking about things like how to apply, you know, design thinking into technology supported learning environments, how to you know, think critically about your learning technologies, um, you know, which ones you're selecting and how it can not only enhance what you're currently doing in your teaching practice, but also transform it too. So like what you said, you know, what sort of new opportunities are there to, you know, 
facilitate new types of interaction or authentic assessments um, and really kind of just rethink what the role of the teacher is as well as what the student is. And then we kind of looked at other things like, I know you're big on, you know, ethical and privacy concerns, mm. um, but then stuff like, you know, are there politics embedded in the technology that you're using, you know, mm-hmm. how do students, you know, create their identity online? How do they navigate online communities? All those sorts of things that you don't really tend to think of, or at least I didn't. I know you probably think of these things, but as a wider community, we don't we don't really tend to think of those things. Well, I think we're not encouraged to, that's for sure. Um, it's something I've been thinking a lot about is this idea of like, like procurement, like how the tools even get to us in the first place, yes. whose voice is included in that conversation. And there's all these signals that we are sent if we think of ourselves as learners by the learning management system about like whether or not we belong here, right? Like yep. when you log into Moodle, does it give you the sense that you are welcome here, that there's a place for you or or does it like not? Does it consciously not? And I think that too often we just get asked to just use the tools and not think about those pieces. And, you know, when you said about putting teaching and learning at the center, it's one of the things that I, I'm really proud of our whole unit is that I think the question we always ask first, it might be a simple question that comes into Moodle support, but the question that we always have to think through is like, well, what are you trying to accomplish? Like, what is the goal here? Because that impacts tool choice, use, everything else, you know? And Too often faculty are handed this really limited set of tools and it's like, well, go teach with these. You don't have any real training in teaching and you don't have any real training in technology, but like, go, (laughs) see ya, do this. Instead of really thinking about how like, yeah, that, that, that virtual learning environment, whatever it is, is really, it's circumscribing what you can do and it's making choices on your behalf and like you got to make sure your politics align with what those choices are. And I'm guessing often they don't. Exactly. No, I, I mean, there is there is lots of activities and stuff that you can, you know, facilitate within Moodle. But I know, you know, my experience doing the MET program completely online, you know, it's, it's really just up to how the course is designed. You know, it's mm-hmm. kind of how much you put into it. And there are those, you know, ways to open it up, of course, if you want to use like a WordPress site or, you know, a lot of the times we use things like Mattermost or Slack or something like that to just kind of improve communication rather than discussion forums or kind of static Mm -hmm. things like those. So there is things out there, but then, you know, of course you have to consider, especially over the last couple of years, you know, if everybody's using a different platform, then, you know, how confusing is that for students when, you know, they have to log into, you know, eight different things in the semester. So it's kind of a balancing act, I guess. It was by far the strangest experience of the pandemic, I think, for Jamie and Brian and me, because we had spent so long trying to convince the community to like try out a new tool, go play in WordPress, check out this Mattermost thing. How about a podcast? And then the pandemic hit and we were like, everybody get your butts into Moodle. Like everything (laughs) has to be relatively uniform. Students are overwhelmed. Platform fatigue is real. Cognitive load is an issue. Like go put your stuff in Moodle and we'll help you. Which isn't to say there wasn't experiment and play because there was, but I think in the context of where everyone's head was at learning in the pandemic, it was like, Maybe this isn't the moment for a lot of play. Maybe right now we focus on just getting the job done. Yeah, exactly. And that that was kind of my worry, at least at the beginning of the pandemic, is that this was going to sour people from Mm. continuing to try new things. And I remember 
again at the beginning you know talking to a couple students and they're think and they're saying things like oh i, I hate online learning i can't mm-hmm. sit in a zoom lecture for three hours and i'm just trying to explain to them this isn't online learning <laughs> this is this no. is you know what i call emergency remote teaching because we had a weekend to prepare for this stuff so i hope it didn't sour people to to doing more blended or flipped approaches or fully online or whatever modality you want to look at because they are two very different things you have to design them purposely for that and you know at least at the beginning we just didn't have the time yeah i mean the intentional design piece was really missing it was like just upload everything and hope for the best i think that we definitely saw like i don't know an exodus back to the classroom like i had more than one person say to me well thankfully i don't ever have to think about this stuff again and i was like oh cool well my life is a lie but what i'm noticing now as i start to talk to folks about their plans for the fall is they are starting to imagine how to fold those tools that they learned back in. And I think that the end result, I suspect, you know, whether the institution structurally wants to talk about it yet or not, I think the end result is going to be more flipped, blended, more hybrid, more sort of use of asynchronous learning activities. Like, I think that's coming because students are starting to really expect to have some engagement and to have less classroom time. But as everything with a university, the structures are going to take some time to catch up to what is actually happening on the ground, which yeah. is why our jobs are weird, because we kind of have to like straddle this line between like what the official discourse of the institution is around things like hybridity mm-hmm. and supporting faculty who are doing it anyway. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I hope faculty can take some positives out of out of this. And I mean, continue. The biggest thing is just to provide students greater choice in how they're attending. So, I mean, I don't want to jinx it, but in terms of saying another pandemic is coming, but I mean, look at Mm. all of our fires that we've been having or um, floods or, you know, if you do offer these more kind of flexible approaches rather than, you know, saying you have to be in class this time, you know, every three days a week or whatever it is, then, I mean, we can start drawing in those students who maybe aren't comfortable fully online learning, but they want some classroom time, but you know, they have kids or they live slightly out of town and don't want to come in three days a week. So it, it really just provides students more choice. And it, it can be more work up front for faculty. I appreciate that. But, um, you know, once you're prepared, then I, th- I think it kind of becomes easier for everybody. Yeah, I agree. And I think I think we need to start thinking about this in terms of resilient pedagogy. Like, what teaching and learning choices can we make and can we prepare for so that, you know, if you wake up and the air is unbreathable, you can send a quick message to your students to say, hey, don't worry about trying to commute in today on account of the air doesn't work. So let's just meet online. And unfortunately, like you were talking about, you know, folding in energy awareness and climate justice. And like, this is the reality of both the moment we live in, but particularly the geography we are in. So yeah, I think resilience and flexibility will continue to be the name of the game. And, um, that's going to take some time for most institutions to adjust to because that's hard for for big hulking entities to, yeah. to wrap their heads around, I think. Yeah, and I mean, there's so many organizational issues that, you know, have to be taken into consideration too. I, I think we were both at ETUG last week and it was it was pretty exciting to see how many institutions are formally adopting things like high flex and, you know, hybrid learning or whatever they want to 
whatever terminology they want to use at their institutions. And I was kind of surprised at how quickly they've done that, not just even at a departmental level, but at an institutional level, because it does take yeah. time. So um, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if we start to look at those things campus-wide or if it's just going to continue to be kind of individual, you know, innovative faculty that kind of take that on themselves. I wonder if we're going to see a push from the province in one direction or the other, because it's not like the province isn't aware of like floods and the fires and the smoke and the, all the different things that quote unquote disrupt learning. Well, yeah. Uh, if we're going to be on fire every summer, let's let's let students stay home. <laughs> Brad, I really just wanted to have this opportunity to introduce you to the community a little bit further, a little bit more rounded than you get to be on the Moodle support tickets. So, thank you so much for taking the time to chat. I'm gonna I'm gonna let you get back to the Moodle support tickets now. Thanks very much for having me. Appreciate it. Thanks. Take care. All right, you too. So that is it for season two, episode 28 of You Got This. As always, if you want to write to us, you can email me. I'm bgray at tru.ca. I'm also on Twitter at Brenna C. Gray. And in both cases, that's gray with an A. All of our show notes and transcripts are posted at yougotthis.truebox.ca. And of course, you can always comment on individual episodes there. I'm going to leave you today with a tiny teaching tip which is grab that syllabus, grab that Moodle shell you're working on, and just consciously add one or two things that address this idea of belongingness. How do you let your students know that this discipline is in fact for them? Take a look at the textbook that you use. What are the pictures like? If you've got a bunch of students studying together, do they look like the diversity of your students? Could you change that by the kinds of images you include in your Moodle shell, for example? How do you signal to students that this is a place for them? My challenge to you is to find one or two ways to do that somewhere in your course materials before you close up the books for the summer. And those of you teaching this summer who are like, thanks, Brenna. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm sorry. But save this lesson. Come back to it. I think it has a lot of value. That's it for me. Take care of yourselves and each other, and I'll be back soon. Bye-bye.